You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. City. Uh, my name is Nathan Jornstead. Uh, my wife Morgan and I have been attending River City for over 10 years now, uh, leading and hosting a community group for much of that time. And uh, I was more recently installed as an elder of this church uh, last fall. God has blessed us with four wonderful children with a fifth child in the womb. So that is an announcement, yes. <clears throat> And we're currently uh, co-leading a community group at our home on Monday nights uh, with Kevin and Robin Olson, both of whom are wonderful servants of Christ. Um, you're definitely welcome to join us, so talk to me after if you want to join our group. Now, it is a great honor and privilege to be opening God's Word for us this morning. The strike team is going to be coming down the aisles with Bibles that you can use during the service. And if you don't have a Bible, please accept this as a gift from River City. Now, as you're opening your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 36. Psalm 36 was written by uh, an extremely dynamic biblical figure, King David. He lived an incredibly complicated and dramatic life, quite comparable to a roller coaster. It should be no wonder to us that this psalm, his psalms have such a wide range of emotions and requests. Now, having lived such an incredible life, His psalms could have included many titles for him. David, the giant slayer. David, the slayer of ten thousands. David, the king of Israel. Or David, the great psalmist. Instead, the title chosen for David in this psalm, I believe, is the most honorable title that could have been used. David, the servant of the Lord. Indeed, this is the only title given to David in all of the psalms being used only in this psalm and Psalm 18, and what greater title could one desire? What could be a greater honor than being called the servant of the Lord? The scripture testifies to David's servanthood to the Lord. Despite his faults and his incredible sin with Bathsheba and the following sins, God says of David, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now, it is the writing of this David to which we now turn to read. So Psalm 36, the intro is, To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. 
O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have it available to us this morning. We thank you for this text. Lord, work in our hearts. Show us where we have been the wicked. And show us, Lord, your goodness, your love, your steadfast love to us. And help us turn to you amidst our wickedness, amidst our sin, and look to you for salvation and for love. In your son's holy name, amen. Now what comes to you, uh, what comes to mind when you think of a slave ship captain in the late 1700s? Despicable, cruel, inhumane, heinous, and wicked would be a few words that come to my mind. How could someone be actively engaged in such an inhumane industry, let alone be in charge of sailing a ship full of souls across the Atlantic to be sold into a life of mistreatment and slavery? To spend months on board, hearing the cries of pain from whips and iron shackles, smelling the excrements of dysentery, and seeing those who have died of disease thrown overboard. One would think no Christian could ever participate in something so terrible. Well, I want to tell you about one, Christ, one such Christian. This man was born in London in 1725 to a God-fearing mother and a seafaring merchant father. He grew up being taught the scriptures by his mother until her death shortly before his seventh birthday. By age 11, he had joined his father at sea, where he spent several years working in various capacities, living with moral abandon, being, uh, before being forced into service with the British Navy. He would later write, I sinned with a high hand and I made it my study to tempt and to seduce others. He then worked aboard the slave ship Pegasus and was eventually left on the coast of West Africa becoming a slave himself until he was rescued by a man sent by his father. Now in his voyage returning to England, he began to seek God after having prayed for God's mercy during a storm that then the storm subsided. He began studying the scriptures and accepted the truths of Christianity. Yet despite that, he continued to work aboard slave ships for another six years, even making three voyages as a captain. Now we'll return to this captain later but my question for now is this. How seared does one's conscience have, need to be to participate in such atrocities? How could one who was studying the scriptures one moment be transporting enslaved and malnourished people in the next? What is the extent of man's wickedness? Now in Psalm 36, which we just read, David paints one of the starkest pictures of man's depravity in scripture. He then contrasts this wickedness with God's goodness. And then he ends with pleading with God to continue his goodness and guard him from the wicked and their end. Now following this structure for our discussion, point number one will be man's wickedness. And man here is being, uh, being the general term for humankind. Point number two, God's loving kindness. And point number three, our dependence. Now it is my hope today that you will see how we, too, are prone to the wickedness 
described in this text and cannot save ourselves. But despite our tendency toward wickedness, God is undeservedly kind to us, and I want to encourage you today to look to him for perseverance. So let us first look into the wicked heart of man. David begins his description of the wicked with this. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Now many of the Hebrew texts actually read in my heart. So in many of the Hebrew texts, this text is indicating that the wickedness of the wicked is very clear to David. That their wickedness is plainly visible for all to see. Now we know this to be true for many who are wicked. For just having a short conversation with them or seeing them engaging in the public, their wickedness is often immediately apparent. Now, in other ancient texts, it reads deep in his heart, meaning it is not only surface-level iniquity, but his wickedness has been rooted deep within his heart. One common phrase often found in Disney movies, self-help books, and music, or on social media is the phrase, follow your heart. Now, in one sense, this might be a good phrase, right? We shouldn't just take whatever anyone else says as the truth and just follow blindly. But this ignores the dangerous nature of our hearts. The Bible speaks very differently of our heart. As Andy read this morning in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If I were left to follow wherever my heart leads, my life and my relationships would be a complete disaster. Now David continues in verse 1. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now herein lies the root from which all other wickedness stems. Adam and Eve sinned because they did not fear what would happen to their relationship with God as a result of eating the fruit. David thought he could sleep with Bathsheba and have her husband killed, and the Lord would continue his favor upon him. Now in our culture today, not only does much of society disregard what God desires or says, but they have deceived themselves into believing that he doesn't even exist. That life is just a combination of moving particles, firing neurons, and chemical reactions within our brain, and nothing more. That our decisions, our actions, and our thoughts are devoid of meaning, significance, and consequence. It is good and right for us to have awe and fear of the holy, righteous, and just God who rules over the universe. This will lead us to a proper understanding of our position before God, and helps us to see our true need for him and that we cannot be good on our own. It's a good and holy fear, like that of Isaiah when he saw the Lord in all his glory sitting upon his throne and he cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This fear reminds us of our unworthiness, and makes the worthiness of Christ shine like the sun in comparison to the insignificant works that we believe will save us. Now this lack of fear of God, which you might call the first self-deception, then leads to the second self-deception of the wicked man. Look with, look with me at verse 2. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Isn't this true of our own sin? Don't we often think that we can just sin this one time and nobody will ever know? We lie because we feel we can get away with it. Nobody uh, will remember. We look at things online. We know we shouldn't because 
we know how to delete our browser history. We hit our siblings in the back of the car because our parents are strapped to their seats up front. Now let me be clear. Your sin will be found out. God is all-knowing and ever-present. What you do late at night when you think you're alone is seen by your creator. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that you will not have to account for your sin, either by paying the price yourself on the day of judgment or by casting your sin upon our worthy Savior. Now, I would go so far as to say that the root of most of our sins is one of these two self-deceptions. Either we don't fear God or we believe he'll never know what we've done. But there's also a third self-deception here that I believe we can fall into. We actually might flatter or deceive ourselves into believing that we've actually done nothing wrong, that we're actually in the right and we have nothing to worry about. And this self-deception can often have the most dangerous consequences. The tyrants of the 20th century, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, all were, all were convinced that what they were doing was actually good for society. They pursued their self-deceived righteous agendas while millions of people were murdered, slaughtered, or died of starvation. Their consciences were seared to the point that they truly believed deep in their hearts that they were doing the right thing. And they convinced many others to follow them by dehumanizing their enemies, deceiving them into thinking that their opponents were lesser humans or even less than human. And the same could be said of the justifications for the slave trade before that and many other atrocities throughout history. Well, today, we are living in an epidemic of deception. And much of that deception has come by renaming, renaming wickedness or by associating ne negative things with positive terms. And our politicians and the intelligentsia are experts at this. The, the murder of the unborn is renamed reproductive rights or women's health. The term for pedophile is now becoming minor attracted person. Some have indicated there are now 74 defined genders and children are being taught that they can transition to a different gender or even be animals termed furries. Fornication has been rebranded as cohabitation. The institution of marriage instituted by God in the creation story with specific and biological intentionality has now been redefined to mean what we want it to mean. And some things that are the opposite of justice have now been thrown under the banner term of social justice. Now we must be vigilant that we ourselves are not deceived, as well as making sure we don't unintentionally continue the deception of others. The words we use, what we call things, and how we communicate with others is of utmost importance. When discussing an issue, we need to ensure we're defining the words we're using and asking for clarifications about the definitions that those we're talking with are using. Many words no longer mean what they meant even a few years ago. We must make sure that we're effectively communicating our message while ensuring that the terms being used are understood and that we're coming from a place of humble assurance in the truth. And in almost 100% of the cases, social media is not the avenue for having such discussions. I myself have fallen for that mistake many times. Now as we continue in the text, David has now then moved on to showing how these self-deceptions play out in the wicked man's interactions and relations with others. Verse 3, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. 
An individual who has deceived him or herself has no moral code stopping them from including others in their deceit. Verse 3 continues, He has ceased to act wisely and do good. If there is no fear of God or he does not exist, what reasons does man have for doing good? As long as it meets his or her selfish ends, even an unrighteous person may do good. But once the benefits have ceased, the good works will too. And not only have they ceased to do good, but to act wisely. As Solomon famously wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now I could restate this in a different way. Disregard for the Lord is the beginning of folly. Verse 4. He plots trouble while on his bed. The place meant for rest has now turned into a place of, for plotting. Now there's a certain weight that comes in not only having done evil, but having dwelled on and considered and plotted and planned that evil. In law, there's a distinction made between premeditated murder and what is called a murder of passion. In one case, the individual had thought through every detail about how that murder would be carried out for quite some time. Now, in the other case, the individual had murdered someone in the moment, having not considered, planned, or intended to commit that crime. And it's worth noting for us here that the sentencing, the sentencing for premeditated murder is usually far more superior, uh, uh, sorry, severe than that of a murder of passion. David continues in verse 4. He sets himself in a way that is not good. The wicked man's decisions are deliberate and intentional. He finds enjoyment in the possibility that going down the wicked path could be fun and exciting. David himself set down that path when he invited Bathsheba into his chamber. How much of our sin could be avoided by setting ourselves on the path that leads to life rather than the path that leads to destruction? We must be careful about the little decisions we make that set our trajectory. If you struggle with alcoholism, why do you plan to go to the bar? If you struggle with pornography, why do you stay up late on, the, on your computer or your phone? If you're struggling with attraction to a coworker while married, why do you work late when you know that they'll be there too? If you struggle with spending in excess on things that you don't need, why go to the places that tempt you to purchase more? Let us pay attention to the subconscious decisions that we make that leave the door open for sin. And instead, close the door tightly and firmly. And in some cases, we can even lock the door and throw away the key. Now finally, David concludes his description of the wicked. He does not reject evil. Having removed any fear of God, having deceived himself and others, having ceased in doing good, and having set himself on a wicked course, evil has now become his companion. Evil is no longer repulsive to the wicked, but actually aids in justifying their actions in their own minds, and they cheer it on, because if everyone else is doing it, why shouldn't I, right? Now David's description in these four verses is so striking because it exposes the human heart for what it is. In these four verses, we see the effects of the fall on full display. Philosophers the world over have sought to understand humanity. However, Without an understanding of the curse of sin that has tainted each and every one of us, as David has described and understands here, their understanding will be misguided and their philosophy far from the truth. 
And we know these verses to be true because not only is it clear in Scripture, but we see these truths in our own lives. Where have you been the wicked person? Where have you lacked the fear of God and deceived yourself into thinking that your sin's not going to be found out? And when have you set yourself on a course toward sin? Now, reading these verses could lead us to despair. What hope do we have if this is the nature of our hearts? But thankfully, David continues the psalm where we'll discuss our next point, God's loving kindness. Verse 5. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Here David makes a dramatic shift. He goes from describing the wickedness of man to describing the goodness of God. Now in this psalm, David uses the Hebrew word chesed, if I said that right, translated in our ESV Bibles as the word steadfast love. This word is used about 250 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, and its meaning is difficult to fully describe in English. It can be translated as mercy, kindness, goodness, steadfast love, and favor. But I feel the most descriptive English translation, though probably not a good actual English word, is loving kindness. One word, no dash. Loving kindness. He said, or chesed, is not a romantic love, but a faithful, reliable love. And it is not a passive love, but an active love, right? It's not God sitting back and thinking, oh, yeah, I love that over there, but it's an act of love and doing acts of service and kindness. So God's chesed, or steadfast love, is described as extending to the heavens. Far above and beyond anything we could imagine is God's loving kindness towards his people, unable to be fully explored or comprehended. God's faithfulness is described as extending to the clouds. As far above our heads are the clouds, so far above our faithfulness to God is God's faithfulness to us. As reliable as the coming of the clouds is God's reliable faithfulness. God's righteousness is described as like the mountains. Mountains are immovable, majestic, awe-inspiring, and ever-present. So too is God's righteousness. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and his righteousness will endure for all of eternity. God's judgments are described like the great deep. As Pastor Jake referenced a few weeks ago, we have better maps of the surface of Mars than the floor of the ocean. And as mysterious as the depths of the ocean and unapproachable by humans are what lies beneath, so too are God's judgments mysterious and unapproachable. Spurgeon writes in his Treasury of David, Far and wide and terrible and irresistible, like the ocean, are the providential dispensations of God. Sometimes it may seem like his justice is sitting idle, like a calm night on the seashore. At other times, it seems like his justice might consume the whole earth, like a great tsunami or a hurricane. But constant and continual and impossible to fully comprehend are the judgments of God. Francis Schaeffer once wrote, Man can know God truly, though he cannot know God exhaustively. Now what Schaeffer is getting at is that God is a vastly different being than us humans. He was before time, 
and he has many incommunicable attributes or attributes that God alone possesses, such as all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, and unchanging. Because he is infinite and we are finite, we will never be able to comprehend him fully, just as we will never be able to fully comprehend the objects of creation used in this text. But we can know God truly. So what do we know is true of God from this text? He is loving and kind. He is faithful. He is righteous and he is just. And God in Christ Jesus is all of these exemplified. God was loving and kind in sending his own son as a child to restore our relationship with him. He is faithful in fulfilling his promises to his people by sending that Messiah to save them from their sins. He is righteous in Christ's sinless life, a righteousness that is now ours, having been made righteous by his blood. And he is just in not letting the wages of sin go unpaid, but in making that payment on our behalf, Christ being our propitiation, that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the only answer that can save us from our wickedness. Christ Jesus, who lived the sinless life we couldn't live and died the death that we deserved. For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And after having placed your faith in him, he frees us from the bondage of sin and our wickedness, and we are now able to live a life of service to him, even if that life is lived imperfectly. As it was the title of David, so too can those who believe in Christ and follow him claim that honorable title, the servant of the Lord. And this is not of our own doing, but it is a gift of grace. David then goes on to describe the benefits received by those who are, his pe- are people of this immeasurable God. Verse 7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Now in this section, we see five metaphors of God's loving kindness, or chesed, towards his people. Wings, house, river, fountain, and light. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This metaphor signifies safety, security, and protection. As one sees the storm rolling in across the North Dakota prairies, they would be wise to seek a place of shelter to protect them from the storm. So too should we seek to find our shelter and protection in the shadow of his wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. This metaphor signifies acceptance, rest, and provision. Now, when I think of a feast, I imagine a cold winter night where the extended family has joined together in the warmth of the home to celebrate Christmas with a joyous feast, a place where the cares of the world are forgotten but for a moment, where family members come together, faults and all, and all is well in the world. So, too, do we find acceptance, rest, and provision when we feast in the house of God. You give them drink from the rivers of your delights. This metaphor signifies pleasure, joy, refreshment, and peace. Now, during the time I've been preparing this message, we've had some incredibly hot days in Fargo. I think everyone is aware of that. And on one hot day, I was out mowing. 
And I can't remember, and I can remember how thirsty I became and how I longed for a nice ice uh, cold glass of water and how refreshing it was to finish the mowing, come inside to the air conditioning and drink that glass of ice water. How refreshing it was. So too is it rejuvenating and refreshing when we find our delight in Christ. For with you is the fountain of life. This metaphor signifies life and flourishing. Apart from God, we are dead in our sin, but in Christ we are given newness of life and we are born again. Many a man has sought throughout history for the fabled fountain of youth, but so much greater is the fountain that is freely offered to all. As we read this morning, the Lord is described as the fountain of living water. May we continue to drink from the true living water that Jesus described to the woman at the well. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In your light do we see light. This signifies clarity, brilliance, and vibrance. Now while we were in South Dakota a couple months ago, we visited the gold mine at, at Deadwood. In part of the tour, they tell everyone to put away their phones and lights, and they shut out the lights in the mine. And in the mine, there is total darkness. You quickly lose awareness of where you're standing, and you're unable to remember where the objects in the room were. Apart from Christ, that's how we are living. This is what it's like trying to navigate this world without the light of God's word and the spirit helping us to see and understand. If you are living in the darkness today, come to the light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now let me ask you this. After having looked at both a description of our wickedness and God's loving kindness toward those who believe, which would you prefer? If you could choose to be in the company of the wicked or the company of Christ, which would you choose? Now, I would hope that's a pretty rhetorical question. As to be with God and the abundance and life that comes from following him is far greater than anything we could ever produce or imagine on our own. Amidst the great trials and sufferings we face on this earth, the wicked will abandon you. But God's steadfast love endures forever, and these truths will hold true. This life of abundance is freely offered to all who surrender to him. Will you choose to do so today? Well, we now come to the last three verses of this psalm, where David finally makes his request known, and surprisingly, he asks for something very simple. In verse 10, he writes, Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. David's request is simple. God, continue being who you've been. Now, for the wicked, God continuing to be who he, should, who he is should be a frightful thought, a thought that strikes fear into their hearts, for their sin will be made known, and his judgments are like the great deep. But for the believer, God continuing to be who he is is a joyful thought one that should bring peace and assurance. And this is something that we should desire. 
something we should long for, and something we should pray for as David is praying here. Oh God, as you have been faithful to us, as you've been gracious and kind to us, please continue. Continue to be faithful. Continue your chesed, your loving kindness. David then brings to God an additional request in verse 11. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. Now I understand this verse to mean that David is asking for the Lord's perseverance against two different enemies. One, internally, the foot of arrogance, and one, externally, the hand of the wicked. Now let's look at the first enemy. I believe David is aware of his tendency towards wickedness and is asking that God would not let the foot of arrogance come upon him. In other words, it's as if he's saying, God, keep me from pride. Let me not flatter myself into thinking that my sin will not be found out. Keep me from believing that I can save myself and that I don't need you. Do you pray that God would keep you from being arrogant? I believe much sin, drama, and emotional waste can be avoided in this life if we live more humbly and less arrogantly toward God and others. Christ himself stepped into this world and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in order for us to be saved, we also must humble ourselves. We must die to ourselves and give up our arrogant ways and humbly submit ourselves to a loving, a just, and a faithful Savior. It is good and right for us to pray, as David does here, that God would humble us and guard us from the vice of arrogance. In looking at the second enemy, David says, Let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. David is here desiring that nothing would keep him from God. It's as if he's asking, God, do not let the wicked lead me astray. Do not let me follow the wicked man down to destruction. The wicked man comes with, with such sweet talk of passion and pleasures, but I know they are fleeting and lead only to death. May I continue in your presence. How aware are we of the influence of others in our lives? How much of our intake of news, social media, and entertainment draws us away from God rather than to God? Do we spend more time on social media and watching TV than we spend with God and his people? What company do you keep? And do they encourage you to humbly serve God, or are they slowly leading you astray? Do you pray to God that you would not be enticed by the pleasures of sin? Well, don't give in to these enemies, but stand firmly and boldly for Christ. Stand firmly against sin and temptation, making sure that you set yourself on the good path. Stand for what is right, even if it seems everyone else is going the opposite direction. And do so not with arrogance or pride, but in humble confidence in the truth. And lean not on your own strength or understanding amidst these trials, but lean on Christ. Cast your burdens upon him and let him lead you in the way of righteousness. David ends this psalm by looking at the wicked as they meet their end. There the evildoer lies fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Some translations read there or look. It's as if David is looking into the future and sees the end that comes to the wicked. For on the day of judgment, God will judge the living and the dead 
and the wicked will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This signifies how complete, how total is their defeat. Their outcome has already been determined, even while David sees the wicked before his eyes. He can be assured that death, Satan, and evildoers will be defeated, and their defeat will be complete, total, and everlasting. This is what the wicked tragically did not fear at the beginning of this psalm, and this is their end. And apart from Christ, this would be our end. We would be the ones thrust down and unable to rise. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We cannot save ourselves, and we are unable to rise. But in Christ, we can be made new, we can be born again and rise to newness of life, to life everlasting, a life filled with abundance and joy, acceptance and rest. A life spent under the shadow of his wings, feasting in his house, drinking from the river of his delights and from his fountain of life. And in his light, we will see light. It is my hope that having looked at this psalm this morning, that you are able to see that we are prone to the wickedness described in this text and cannot save ourselves. But despite our tendency toward wickedness, God is undeservedly kind to us. And I hope you are encouraged today to look for him for perseverance. But what about that slave ship captain? As we close, let's return and, and, and talk about him. By looking at his life, we too can have hope that someone as cruel and wicked as a slave ship captain can find redemption in Christ and turn from their wickedness. For the captain we've been discussing is the great hymnist John Newton. After his time as a slave ship captain, Newton worked as a tax collector and eventually became an ordained minister of the Church of England. As the years passed, he became more and more convicted of his time in the slave trade. In 1788, he published a pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, in which he wrote, It will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. His desire was that the pamphlet would help the people of Britain understand the horrors of the slave trade and that it would aid in its abolition. He became, became good friends with William Wilberforce, who was the driving force in the British Parliament for the abolition of the slave trade. And Newton testified before the British government about the horrors of his experiences. Having fought for much of his, life, uh, his later years to end the slave trade, it was finally abolished in Britain after the passing of the Slave Trade Act of 1807, just a few months before his death. Newton was well aware of how prone our hearts are towards wickedness. Having lived much of his early life with moral abandon, near the end of his life, he, he is quoted as having said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. He understood his need for Christ and that apart from him, we cannot save ourselves. And like Newton, you too can be saved from your life of wickedness. Now as we end here today, we'll be singing his most famous hymn, Amazing Grace, a hymn which is familiar to many. But when we sing it, let us listen again afresh to the words. 
praising God for his loving kindness towards us while we were yet sinners. And let me close with this quote of Newton's, and may this be true of all of our lives. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. Let us pray. Father, you are good. You are loving. You're faithful. You're righteous. You're just. And many times, Lord, we are none of those. We're not loving. We're faithless. We're sinful. And we seek injustice at times, Lord. But Lord, you're good. And despite our wickedness, you've offered us a way that we can be made righteous by your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to turn to you, to turn to Christ, that we might have newness of life and all the benefits that come, Lord, in this text, in in your house and feasting and, and drinking from the river of your delights. Help us, Lord, to turn from our evil ways and to surrender to you today. Amen.